Welcome back to Unprecedental. I'm Adam White. Happy very early Independence Day, everyone. In a couple of weeks, like every year, the 4th of July will be a chance for Americans to celebrate the republic that our forefathers founded and to celebrate all that later generations did to keep it. John Adams, for one, knew from the start that Independence Day would become a cause for annual celebrations. He explained this famously to his wife, Abigail, in a letter dated July 3rd, 1776. Adams wrote, quote, I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. It's a wonderful and well-remembered note of optimism, but the paragraph that followed is, if less famous, no less important. Because Adams wrote, quote, You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, he added, I can see with the rays of ravishing light and glory, I can see that the end is more than worth all the means, and that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even although we should rue it, which I trust in God, we shall not. So Adam saw his generation's moment with great hope, but also great fear. And he wasn't alone. Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, and others worried that the new American nation might not endure for long. That's the subject of a bracing new book titled Fears of a Setting Sun, The Disillusionment of America's Founders. And its author, Dennis Rasmussen, is our guest today. Dennis, welcome to Unprecedental. Thanks for having me. Dennis is a professor of political science at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. You might recall his last book titled The Infidel and the Professor, David Hume, Adam Smith, and the Friendship that Shaped Modern Thought. We might return briefly to that book later, but let's get started on the new book and let's start with its title. Dennis, what was the setting sun? And the book's title. So the title refers, of all things, to a piece of furniture. So that what was now known as the Rising Sun Chair. So the story takes place on the last day of the Constitutional Convention. So this is seven, September seventeenth, seventeen eighty-seven, where the delegates are si lining up to sign their names to the the document after the long summer debating and, and formulating it. And as they were doing so, Benjamin Franklin, who is the oldest and one of the most revered of the delegates called attention to the chair that George Washington had sat in the front of the room all summer. So Washington was the president of the convention. And the chair that he sat in was this high-backed mahogany chair that had a decorative half sunburst carved into the crest. And Franklin had called attention to this, this son on the chair. And he said he had often wondered over the course of the convention whether that was a rising or a setting sun, and that he now had the happiness to know that it was a rising and not a setting sun. And so this is often taken to be sort of emblematic of the optimism that the founders felt at the new government's birth. You can still see the rising sun chair on, on display at Independence Hall. It's also, the, there's a photograph of it as the frontispiece of the book. But of course, the theme of the book is that most of the leading founders came to be deeply disillusioned with what they had wrought later in their lives. And so the, the metaphor is that they feared the sun wasn't, in fact, rising, that it might have been setting. It's a remarkable scene. It's captured in Madison's notes. 
I think it's all the more remarkable because at the beginning of that day, or at least the beginning of Madison's notes for the day, it begins with a speech by Franklin that Franklin himself doesn't deliver. He has it written out. It's delivered by James Wilson. I mean, because Franklin's health was, I mean, he was so enfeebled at the time at the end of the convention. The fact that he makes a point to himself make these remarks, these observations at the end while people are signing is remarkable. I suppose it also should be juxtaposed with the perhaps apocryphal line from Franklin at the convention. Somebody supposedly asks him outside of the hall, Mr. Franklin, what have you given to us, us Americans? And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. I suppose there is a note from Franklin, a tinge of, of realism, of worry. But I, I suppose before we jump into the individuals that you trace out of this amazing narrative of a book, how would you describe the, the mood in Philadelphia as they, they conclude the Constitutional Convention? Madison is there. Hamilton is there. Washington is there. Did the rest of Franklin's peers, did they see the sun rising, would you say, at, at that moment in American history? I'd say most of the leading figures of the convention were, from our perspective today, surprisingly ambivalent. So we think of James Madison as the father of the Constitution, as, as the Constitution embodying Madisonian principles. In fact, he was pretty deeply disappointed as they left the convention. He had a number of things that he was dead set on going in. He wanted Congress to have a veto over state laws. He wanted the Senate, as well as the House, to be proportionally represented as opposed to equal representation among the states. A number of other things that he, he fought for but lost on. He wrote a letter to Jefferson, who is off in, in Paris, as the America's envoy to Paris, where he basically said, the Constitution isn't going to do what we hoped it would do. It's really a partial solution rather than the, the full one that we need to the woes of the Articles of Confederation. Hamilton, too, was very disappointed. He, he stated during the convention itself that, as Madison's notes have it, no man's ideas are further from the, the Constitution than, than his own were. Washington was a bit ambivalent when they got it in Paris. Both Adams and Jefferson had some qualms, in, in Jefferson's case, pretty deep qualms. But these, many of these worries subsided quite quickly. So it's right when the convention is, is closing is what you asked about when Franklin gives his quip about, you know, the republic, if you can keep it. I think there, many of them are pretty deeply ambivalent then. Within a year or two, many of them are almost ecstatic at all that the new government has accomplished. It's really remarkable how for all the rancor over whether the Constitution should be ratified over the course of 1787, 1788. By, let's say, 1790, it seems like all Americans are behind it. The, the people have rallied behind the new government and, you know, Washington, Madison, even to some degree, Hamilton are, are kind of overflowing with optimism about the new government and its future. So it's really interesting. It's, you know, right after the convention, there's this bit of disappointment that then lulls and then increases over time at different times for different figures and for different reasons. But there is this moment of optimism for a few years after the Constitution was ratified. Jefferson and Adams are not there, of course. They're overseas, but they're both closely attentive to what's happening. Jefferson is corresponding with Madison throughout it all. You remind us in your book that Hamilton is only there for part of the convention. He gives that famous speech, which I think actually Gary Schmidt and Joe Bassett and I touched on in the last episode on the, the founding of the Republican executive. But Hamilton gives this speech that's very, very far afield from much of the rest of the sentiment of the, the folks in Philadelphia. He's gone for months during the summer. Two fellow delegates from New York are not on board with the proposal for the Constitution. New York doesn't ratify it. Hamilton signs it alone. 
But of course, he then throws himself into the Federalist, which I guess we'll get back to. But Washington is such an interesting case to begin with. You begin with him in your book. He doesn't, I mean, Madison's notes don't reflect him saying much as he's presiding over the convention until the very, very end. But then, of course, Washington knows what's in store for him, almost certainly under the new constitution. And after its ratification, after his election, he has a long journey to New York, which we also touched on here on the podcast a few months ago, discussing a wonderful book on Washington's first inauguration. And that story of Washington arriving in New York met every stop along the way by crowds celebrating him, celebrating the Constitution. That book on Washington's first inauguration is such an optimistic story of of what might be about to come with our new government. Washington arrives in New York, becomes the president. At what point does he start to have doubts about the project? I think if you want to pinpoint it, I'd say 1792. So the first few years, as I suggested a minute ago, he's quite optimistic. He takes a tour of the North, then a tour of the South. He's greeted warmly everywhere. Everybody seems to be rallying behind the government. And so the first few years, he really thinks that the Constitution's success and the future is bright. It's really the first election year or the first presidential election year that his, his worries start to emerge. And his worries really center on the rise of parties and partisanship. So everybody at the founding generation at least proclaimed to be opposed to parties, right? This is a, a kind of stock theme of 18th century political discourse. But Washington really was. He was really sincere, really consistent, really insistent on the dangers posed by party. He thought that partisans are necessarily partial. That is to say, they favor the interests of some parochial group over the public good. So they're not true disinterested patriots, and that they also undermine Republican government. He thought that the, the conflict between parties would divide the community, would subvert public order. He disliked the idea of a standing opposition party, which he thought would make the government much worse administered. He thought that parties opened the door to foreign influence and, and corruption and the like. And so he's wary from the very beginning of his career. He's wary of what he calls at one point the demon of party spirit. He really just doesn't think Republican government can work under conditions where the political leaders and the people are partisan, and they become partisan. And and this is really the source of his disillusionment, is his realization that the parties that begin in his own cabinet, right, you have Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton leading the Federalist Party, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson leading the Republican Party, they're bitter enemies within his own cabinet. This spreads to the rest of the country. And I think it's really 1792 when he realizes that this is happening and begins the, you know, what would be a pretty continual downward trajectory in his hopes for America's future. Yeah, he had good reason to be optimistic in those earlier years. The government comes together quite well. He has Madison serving almost as a prime minister in Congress, really helping to, first of all, take care of the the Bill of Rights that was really needed to complete the constitutional project, but also just to build a government, build the original administration, the departments of government, and to just begin that basic process of writing laws. In my the class I teach on administrative law at George Mason University, I always begin by pointing the students to those initial bills of what it really took to build a government in terms of taxes, departments, and everything. And it all goes pretty well. We'll talk a little more specifically, what is it in 1792 where things really start to fall apart and that these, these factions inside of ha- I won't say Hamilton's cabinet, inside <laughs> of Washington's cabinet start to blow up? What, what, what was it all blowing up over? 
So Jefferson would have said it was Hamilton's cabinet. <laughs> that was part of the problem. So I think it really hits home to Washington because of the blowups in the press. So in 1791, Jefferson and Madison, unbeknownst to Washington, take steps to start funding an opposition press led by a guy named Philip Freneau, who starts the National Gazette in the, I think it was the autumn of 1791. This paper soon becomes a fawning admirer of Jefferson and a vicious critic of Hamilton. And it's really, I mean, you have to, it's hard to see it as anything other than an act of betrayal on their part, on Madison's, and especially Jefferson's part, right? He's part of the cabinet and he's funding an anti-administration newspaper. And so Washington, when he sees these attacks in, in the paper, and this really does sort of arouse opposition and, and consolidate the two, two parties. This is really, I think, what leads Washington to see how bad the partisanship has gotten. In 1792, he writes letters to, among others, Hamilton and Jefferson saying, you know, this partisanship is getting out of hand. I think I'm going to step down. I don't want to run for a second term. They, of course, immediately say, no, you have to. The, the country can't survive. You know, they agree on nothing else, but they, they agree that he, Washington, is his presence is needed in the president's chair. But he, he, you know, urges them both to calm down the partisan bickering between each other and, and you know, hope to keep their followers at the partisanship at bay as well. And he gets these shrill replies back from both of them, that Hamilton and Jefferson both write back and say, you know, I'm sorry, Washington, that you're so worried about this. But really, it's the other guy's fault. I'm more injured party. You know, you might have to make changes to the cabinet soon. The other guy might have to go. Right there, there really, there's no hint of cooperation or even really civility. And I think it's at that point that Washington really becomes depressed. Again, he really wants to step down. He he sort of allows himself to be drafted once again against his will for a second term. But then the second term, the partisanship only grows and grows. It gets worse for the remainder of his life, really. Right. There's the, there's the question of the neutrality, the neutrality issue amid the war between France and England and everything else. You describe his farewell address. I mean, he, I guess he had a draft with Madison from years earlier, from 1792. He winds up revising that draft. I went back and looked at it, reading your book and getting ready for this conversation. And it, it is a, a fascinating document to read in advance. And it's famous for its lines. As you point out, the book is famous for its lines about foreign entanglements and so on. But it's, it's after its initial opening paragraphs, where he's thanking the country and expressing, you know, both gratitude and modesty. He writes, here, perhaps I ought to stop, but a solicitude for your welfare, which cannot end but with my life, and the apprehension of danger natural to that solicitude, urge me on an occasion like the present to offer you solemn, to offer your solemn contemplation, et cetera, et cetera. This line, the apprehension of danger. He really saw real problems for the country on the, on the horizon. So as he leaves office and, and retires to his, his vine and, and fig tree in, in Mount Vernon, how would you characterize those last years of his life and, and, and his mood in those last years? Sure. So on the farewell address, let me first say, we often, I, I think the, the farewell is often read as a sort of warning that these, these are threats looming on the horizon. These are things that might one day happen to America, to the American Republic. I think is better read as lament about ills that he thought had already beset the country, right? He, he spends a big, big chunk of the farewell address bemoaning the ills of partisanship, but he's bemoaning the ills that he sees all around him, that he's experienced during his, especially during his second term. But 
during his time as as president. And it's really remarkable that this is the way he chooses to go out, right? He's accomplished a great deal. I won't rehearse all, all, all of his accomplishments, but I think it's arguable that he accomplished more than any president ever has, with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln. And you know, so, so he could have gone out with a sort of victory laugh saying, look at all this great stuff I've done. What a success this presidency has been. And he says, instead, I'm, I'm worried enough that I'm going to ruminate on the potential end of the American experiment. So I do think that's a, a remarkable document. His last few years, if anything, only go downhill. So he, I'd say some of the biggest events during, he's only lives about three years beyond his retirement. So it's not a long retirement. But during this time, we get the quasi-war with France. Along with that, there's an army buildup. Washington sort of comes out of retirement to at least nominally head the new army. You get in the midst of this quasi-war, you get the Alien and Sedition Acts by the Federalists, and then in response, the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions by the Republicans. And all of this leads to more doom and gloom on Washington's part. He's worried especially about the Republicans, that they're kind of essentially Jacobins, that they're, they're, they're partial to France, that they would they hope to essentially turn America into a tribute state of, of France, that they do anything despite the, the, all the ills of the French Revolution, the terror and the like. They're besotted with the, idea, the, the revolutionaries' ideals. And he himself, I mean, he, during his presidency, he really strove to be above party and, and to have this aura of Olympian detachment that he was above it all. During his retirement, I think he basically, I think unwittingly, but still firmly drifts into the Federalist camp. He more or less corresponds only with Federalists. When he's setting up this new army, he wants only Federalists as office holders. He takes sides in election. He had never before supported anyone for election on, on either side. But now he's willing to support basically anyone who has a chance of winning as a Federalist in Virginia. And so, you know, he becomes the, the partisan that he had always feared more or less, I think, during his, his post-presidential years. And so his letters become more and more worried, if not apocalyptic, toward the very end of his life. There's a letter that I used for the title for the last of the three Washington chapters, where he, he laments that if the Republicans were to set up a broomstick and call it a, a Democrat or a true son of liberty or whatever, whatever term of praise they, they wanted to, then it would command their votes in toto. Meaning, yeah. He realized it wasn't just the political elite, it was everyday American citizens had become thoroughly, ir irretrievably partisan. And he had said from the beginning of his career that he just didn't think Republican government could work under those terms. And so this is why I think by the end of his life, he, he thought the country was more or less doomed. In fairness to Jefferson, and as you just pointed out a moment ago, for, for all of Washington's worries about partisanship, about faction... Jefferson believed that Washington had drifted into Federalist partisanship long before Washington himself ever, ever saw that to be the case. Absolutely. Uh, we'll That's one of the reasons he steps down from the cabinet, right? Even in 1795, I think it was, right? So this is much earlier on. He thinks Washington is, you know, always sides with Hamilton, more or less. Now, let's just point out the last lines of Washington's farewell address. Just one last quote. This is the very last lines of the address. He writes, I anticipate with pleasing expectation. That retreat in which I promised myself to realize without alloy the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite objective of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. So he does end on an optimistic note, 
those lines might 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 be the triumph of hope over experience, or it might be him trying to put the best possible optimistic close to an otherwise very worried and urgent, urgent letter. But it sounds to me like his actual retirement perhaps didn't live up quite to his the hopes he expressed at the end of that letter, or at least that as as he passed away, he did it with real worry that those hopes might not come to pass. That's right. I mean, he says in just weeks before his death, he he writes a letter where he says that it's long appeared to me that the country is moving by hasty strides towards some awful crisis. So by the end, I mean, it's not that he's given up hope. I don't think that was in Washington's character to give up hope, but he really has a sense of foreboding about the, the country's future by the end. Yeah, it's interesting. One last note on Washington. He was no utopian, right? Of all of the framers, He's arguably the most practical of them. I mean, obviously, Madison was a practical man, too. But Madison, Madison's was sort of a practical theory. Washington's was as much a practical way of life, right, as his work in government, his work as a surveyor, his work as a planter and a farmer and a landowner, all these things. Uh, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a utopian by any means. So it's not a question of the world not living up to, to unrealistic hopes. It really was the storm clouds were on, were on the horizon. Now, Hamilton, of course, stays on the scene a little longer than Washington. But only change gears and, and begin by just contrasting Hamilton with Washington. For all of their agreements, all that they had in common, including the fact that they were worried, the nature of their worries are very different. And you make that very clear in your book. What was Hamilton worried about? And how did it differ from, from what we just described in Washington's sphere of partisanship? Right. So there is quite a bit of overlap in their outlooks. And so far as both, you know, if you want to, Washington was essentially a federalist when he became that federalist, historians will debate. But by the end, at least he's a federalist. And obviously Hamilton is too. But his chief worry is slightly different than Washington's, which is that he worries really that the federal government just won't be powerful enough. And this is something I'm not sure many of the listeners of this podcast will be super sympathetic to, but he just thought that the federal government didn't have sufficient vigor or energy in relation to the state governments. He's really an almost unabashed proponent of a strong national authority, which it really, of course, obviously runs up against the whole intellectual culture that had fueled the revolution in, in the first place. But he really thought that you needed to protect individual liberty. You needed a strong central government. That If you don't have a strong central government, you get what you got under the Articles of Confederation, which is if not lawlessness, at least fecklessness by the government. And you need both to stand up to foreign foes, but also to protect individual rights within. You needed a strong central authority that a weak government was more often a threat to liberty than a strong government was. And so he worried when the Constitution was framed that it wouldn't be powerful enough. He spent the 1790s trying to build up that government, but was just never satisfied that he had done enough. And then, of course, in 1800, his arch enemy, Jefferson gets elected president with a mandate to pare down the government's power still further. And so then he goes into, I believe, outright dissolution. I mean, it is a remarkably constant theme through Hamilton's work. I mean, in the Federalist, you know, a line I go back to so often in Federalist 68 or 76, you know, the true test of, of any constitution is its tendency to produce a good administration, right? Over and over again, Hamilton is worried, not just, I mean, he's worried about the lack of energy in government but especially the lack of energy in administration and most famously energy in the executive. And so it is, it's remarkable, the narrative of your book, as you walk through how he continually returns to that theme, both in 
his own energetic proposals on public credit, on manufacturers and, and everything else, but over and over again, trying to make sure that government, especially administration, is capable of, of actually administering the laws that have been passed and actually giving the people a government that they can be proud of, that they can respect and trust. And he worries, again, you, you hearken back to his own sort of farewell, a private farewell, a letter that he writes to Theodore Sedgwick. Was it the day before he, he died in the duel or maybe shortly yes, before he so. dies? Yeah. Right, where, where he worries, well, he worries about the dismemberment, as he calls it, of the country and the fact that it'll deprive the, the, the American people of that one solid good government that really is key to the, to the success of the nation. But again, let's get a little bit more concrete. What specifically is stoking Hamilton's fears, especially towards the end, of, of a lack of energy in the federal administration? So you're, you're absolutely right to say he's trying to build up the executive branch while he's in the Treasury Department. And, and really, even after he steps out from the cabinet, he's still wielding a lot of power back from his home. And he's trying to take advantage of essentially the fact that Washington, the war hero Washington, is in the president's chair. No one's going to object too much. But he basically anything that happens, he uses it as an opportunity to try to build up the government, whether it's you know the Whiskey Rebellion or the Jay Treaty, you know whatever debate it is, he uses it to build up the government, to build up the especially the executive branch. And then even after Washington steps down, he tries to use the the quasi war as an excuse to do this. But he just fears that every step along the way, people don't want to go as far as he does, right? The, in part because you always have Jefferson and Madison there you know, pushing back and, and, you know, all the Republican followers, of course, pushing back against what he wants to do. They all see him as essentially a monarchist and trying to all but eliminate the states. And so, you know, he never really feels like, well, we're building up the army, we're, we're not building it up enough, or we're increasing the president's powers in foreign affairs, but we're not doing so enough. So just each step, he never feels like they'll go far enough. And then, of course, again, the election of 1800 is really the doom of his hopes. He doesn't think that any of the potential victors in the election of 1800, which is to say Adams, Jefferson, or maybe Aaron Burr, given the, the accidental tie in the Electoral College, any of them he thought would essentially lead to the downfall of the government. But Jefferson is the one who takes power. The Republicans take power in both houses of Congress. And they set about dismantling a lot of the things that he had built up over the 1790s. And his letters are just, you know, to one correspondent after another saying, can you believe how much they're doing, how far they're going in dismantling the government and keeping it from being effective and, and well-administered? The letter to Sedgwick that you, you brought up, I think, is a good one. My favorite one is a letter that he writes to Governor Morris. It was a leap day. I think it was February 29th, 1803 or yeah. four. I can't remember. Yeah, I like that detail in the book, by the way, just when you just pointed that out in passing. The leap day thing? Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, so so but the, but the letter it makes its way into the Broadway musical even the the one yeah. of the lines. But he in this letter he says, you know, I've sacrificed so much for the country for the Constitution. He at one point in the letter calls the Constitution a frail and worthless fabric. To call the Constitution worthless is a really striking thing. He concludes the letter by saying, "There's nothing I can do. I just should withdraw from the scene." Every day proves more and more that this American world is not made for me. And so he feels like he's done everything he can to make the country into this great superpower that he, he envisions it being over the course of time. And he just concludes that he's out of place, that the country isn't willing to go along with him. And so, yeah, at the end, he's worried that basically disillusion and disorder is what's coming, that it, the, the country is too 
small d democratic or populist or licentious, that there's just not enough vigor in the government to sustain it over the long term. And as you point out, Hamilton, too, he has moments of hope and despair throughout his his, his career on the public stage. Right. He again, begins the Constitutional Convention with a flurry and gets almost he gets very little of the most controversial things he was calling for at the convention. Yet he then goes on to lead the, the Federalist Papers effort, urging the country to ratify this document. But then so much of your book sent me back to like last lines of famous documents. Here, too, I went to the last lines of the Federalist, where he in this la- very last paragraph refers to his trembling anxiety that things might not come to pass. But then throughout, there's the Washington administration and then the fall of, of Adams, the arrival of Jefferson. Even then, right before things, I guess, the, was John McCain used to say, it's always darkest before pitch black. Um, <laughs> all, right, before, right before things really take a dark turn by Hamilton's view in the Jefferson administration, you point out that Hamilton actually has a moment of hope early in the Jefferson administration. You say that Hamilton latched onto the line in, in Jefferson's inaugural, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. You say there was a, a moment of hope there where Hamilton hoped or perhaps wished that things might work out better than he had feared. And again, they had just dodged the bullet of a Burr administration. Well, bad pun, I, I guess, with Burr, but they had dodged the bullet of a Burr administration. And so Jefferson was an improvement on that. But then, yes, of course, things fall to pieces and Hamilton complains about all the sacrifices he's made, which are all for naught. That's right. I think there's also a moment of real hope during the quasi-war. In the wake of the XYZ affair, the Republicans are put on the defensive by this. I won't go through the whole history of it, but you know, the country really rallies around President Adams and they start to build up the new army and he starts to think, wow, okay, maybe, maybe we're going to get this vigorous government after all. I'm going to lead the new army. Maybe I'm going to square off against Napoleon, right? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be this this great figure in history, and the country is going to be this great country in history, and and it's all going to work out. But then that too, Adam sends his peace mission to the second peace mission to France, and that collapses the need for the new army and the the Hamiltons. I guess you have to call it hopes for a war. And so, yeah, every time there's a, a moment of hope, it just doesn't last that long for Hamilton. Now, at the same time, of course, this is overlapping with the Adams administration, at least before Jefferson arrives. Adams and Hamilton are both Federalists. And so they both, you know, they share some fears, but but other things very much they disagree over sort of infamously through inside of Adams cabinet where, where Hamilton stayed for a while. One thing they agreed on I thought was remarkable was the, the letters where Adam is complaining, Adams is complaining about all of his sacrifices that nobody has appreciated. And Adam's saying, nobody has sacrificed more than me. I guess he writes that after his presidency. Sounds very much akin to Hamilton's own complaints of, of his own sacrifices. But here too, Adam's fear of a setting sun, so to speak, it differs from Hamilton because Adams is worried about something else, right? What, what, what is Adams worried about? So as you're hinting at here, each of the the figures has a theme connected with it. So for Washington, it was parties and partisanship. Hamilton, it was the vigor energy of the the national government. For Adams, really the concern is civic virtue. He this is the something he returns to again and again over the course of his career. Is he just doesn't think the American people are virtuous enough that they have the right character, that they're sufficiently dedicated to the country, willing to put the public good ahead of their own, and he thinks that this makes them unfit for Republican government, that just as Washington didn't think Republican government could last if the people were partisan, Adams didn't think that Republican government could work if the people were selfish. 
And he came to believe fairly early on that the people were selfish. So this is, he sort of wavers about this question during the revolution. There are times during the Revolutionary War where, you know, he sees people sacrificing for the war and teaming up to fight the British and and the war for independence. You know, he has moments of hope, but he also has some really dark moments during the war for independence itself, where he says, you know, the people are so selfish. And and even in New England, which he sees as this wellspring of of patriotism, he thinks even here, people are too selfish, it's it's not going to work. And then really by the 1780s, he's convinced that the American people are just as selfish, just as addicted to comfort and luxury and the like as anyone, any other country has ever been. So he really tries to puncture the myth of American exceptionalism, this idea that Jefferson always clung to, that the American people were uniquely virtuous among all the peoples in history. Adams would have none of it. He really thought the American people were, were the same as all other peoples would have been. And so Republican government could expect to meet the same fate as America as it had met everywhere else, which is to say it just wouldn't, wouldn't work. Yeah. Given my own sort of interest in, in the founders and civic virtue and, and Republican virtue, this was a part of the book that I was really, really looking forward to reading. And your treatment of the issue is so nuanced because you, you emphasize for all the quotes that we can find in Adams about the importance of civic virtue, or even more than that, just a virtuous people more broadly. You point out he wasn't, again, wasn't a utopian. He wasn't completely unrealistic about this. You point out he, he actually quibbles with those like, like Montesquieu who might say that, that, that virtue is indispensable. You quote him, this is quoting Adams, it's not true, in fact, that any people ever existed who loved the public better than themselves, their private friends, their neighbors. And so all projects of government formed upon a supposition of continual vigilance, sagacity, and virtue or cheats and delusions. And so he was realistic about this, but he didn't err in the other direction and say virtue is irrelevant, right? He knew that we needed some stockpile of civic virtue. And throughout his time in public service, and especially his presidency, he becomes less and less hopeful that this is actually possible. Now, how much of this is just the fact that he winds up having more or less a failed presidency and is is voted out of office by, I mean, that's probably overstating it, right? But but he is our first one-term president. He leaves in a, a flurry at the end, appointing the midnight judges and all the magistrates and then getting out before Jefferson can begin his own administration. And he sort of goes into, he becomes somewhat of a recluse for a few years before really engaging public life. How much of Adam's pessimism is just the fact that he sort of he loses so badly in American politics over the course of his presidency? Well, I just think chronologically, that can't be the main explanation because it starts so much earlier, right? It starts, <laughs> if not by the 1770s, at least by the 1780s, right? Yeah. So he's disillusioned with America before the Constitution is even a twinkle in the framers' eye. He, he's already convinced that the American people are too selfish for Republican government to work. There's these really remarkable lines, right? He takes up his post as vice president. He comes to New York, where the first capital is, and he's trying to convince Abigail to move from Massachusetts to New York to, to be with him. And he says, okay, you know, I know Massachusetts is home and, I, you know, I know you want to stay there, but, you know, this is my new job. We have to move to New York and think of Massachusetts as home no longer for the next four years, at least if the government's going to last that long, right? That is to say, if this new, this new constitution lasts even four years, we, we have to be here for those four. By the time he takes office, you know, he, his first letters to Abigail and others after assuming the presidency kind of say, 
wow, I thought things were bad before, but now I'm in a position to see things are even worse than I expected, right? The, the, the ambition, the, the partisanship, the, the demagoguery that I, I knew was there during these years as vice president. As president, I see it's even worse than I expected. You know, no president has ever assumed office so disappointed in the whole character of the government on the, if not the day, at least the month or two after being inaugurated. And then at last, uh, I mean, he's, he's retired for 26 years or whatever, right? There's a quarter century of his retirement and it lasts not unbroken. There are moments of hope in, during the War of 1812 and, and so forth. But, you know, the disillusionment really lasts a half century in Adams's case. So it's, it's a very long lasting thing. Now, as, as somebody who moved yourself from Boston when you used to be at Tufts to New York State, I'm sure you can, you can identify with, with Adams' plight. Sure. Reading this chapter, where your book alludes to Hamilton's, you know, the more recent biography, and of course, the famous musical Hamilton. Reading these chapters on Adams, I actually thought back to the miniseries, this wonderful television miniseries on Adams from a decade or so ago on HBO, Adams played by Paul Giamatti. And one of the great parts of Giamatti's depiction of Adams is just how lost at sea Adams really is in that initial government, right? He's Washington's vice president, but never really part of the cabinet. He's in the Senate. He's president of the Senate and lampooned as such in the famous account of the first Senate by blanking on his name, one of the senators from Pennsylvania. But in all of this, Adams is just lost at sea in government. And so I, I, it, it makes a lot of sense that he would be disillusioned with it all. But the way you framed it just a moment ago was interesting, right? He was disillusioned for, for 50 years. Was Adams ever really illusioned, so to speak? I mean, can you be disillusioned when you start from, from such low hopes? It's a fair question. And for him, more than any of the others, I think that's right in that he, he was, I don't think, ever illusioned or fully illusioned, if, if you want to put it that way. Again, during the War for Independence, he did have these moments of hope where he says, you know, a, a democratic despotism is a contradiction in terms. Once we have Republican government, the people are going to want to put the, themselves first, right? How could you not want what's good for the country, which is to say themselves? So he did have at least moments of illusionment or, or moments of hope during the revolution. As I suggested a second ago, he also had, interestingly, some moments of hope during the War of 1812, where he saw this renewed sense of patriotism and, and cohesion among the people that he hadn't seen in a long time. I'd, I'd point to one, a third moment in his career in between those two, right around the time of the Constitutional Convention, which is, again, he doesn't attend. He, he's off in Europe. But just before the Constitutional Convention, he writes his massive work, The Defense of the Constitutions of the Government of the United States where he seems to think that the proper balance among the parts of the government and the different orders of society could make up for the lack of civic virtue. The Constitution itself mostly heartens him. And so there are at least moments in his career where he does seem to have hope. But no, there, there, it's never as sustained or the hopes are never as high, I would say, as for certainly as Jefferson, but even as, say, Washington during those first years of Washington's presidency. So. Yeah. So Adam's disillusionment, I, I wouldn't probably use that term if it was just a book on Adam's. I think it's fair applied to the other three. For him, it's more pessimism or realism, depending on your, your take on, on whether he was right to be as despairing as he was. Yeah. For Adam's, the situation's always bad, but it could always get even worse. That's right. Um, exactly. <laughs> Jefferson now is an interesting figure to follow in all this. And in many ways, sort of the opposite. Jefferson has great reason for pessimism in those early years of American government. And he's not entirely satisfied with the Constitution, right? So much of, of his letters back and forth with Madison during the Constitutional Convention make clear that 
that the Constitution that Madison is producing is not the one that Jefferson might write from scratch himself. But of course, eventually things get much better for Jefferson. He wins the presidency. He, he and his political movement really end the Federalist Party. He serves two terms, greatly expands the country, has a successful presidency by almost every definition, and then goes into his own post-presidency, which, yes, gives rise to the, we see the, the War of 1812 and, and all that. But the country as a whole seems to be, I would think, moving in a Jeffersonian direction under the Republican Party. Yet you find Jefferson returning to a very pessimistic place, and it's because of, of all things of Missouri. Uh, could you tell that story? Absolutely. So you're right. I mean, Jefferson's disillusionment is, I think, the most striking of the four main characters, because as you rightly suggest, for, for most of his life, he's just unrelentingly optimistic about America and the American people, and that everything will come right at the end. Even during the 1790s, when, when Hamilton's in power with the Alien and Sedition Acts, I mean, there's lots of stuff he doesn't like during the 1790s, but he's always sure that the Americans, American people are good, both small R Republicans and even capital R Republicans, that they're Jeffersonians at, at heart and that things will eventually be set right. And then, of course, in the election of 1800, he thought they were set right. He was elected president. The Republicans swept to power in Congress. And he thought, you know, we can sail off into the sunset. He wrote a Lots of these self-congratulatory letters to all kinds of friends saying, yeah. you know, the ship is in port. We've survived. The America won, right? American liberty survived because, you know, I'm president now. Everything will be fine. And this optimism more or less continues, I'd say, at least through, let's say, 1816 or so. So toward Madison's second term as president, the, 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 very, the very end of it, he's still quite optimistic. But what really burst the bubble is... The Missouri Crisis, which is to say the battle over the expansion of slavery. Basically, Missouri was ready for admission to statehood. And the question was, will it be admitted as a free state or a slave state? And this is the first real big contentious fight, national fight over the place of slavery and the future of slavery in the country. And this really sets Jefferson's alarm bells going. He, he writes a famous letter where he says this question awakened me like a firebell in the night and, and filled me with terror. I considered it once the knell of the Union. So this is sort of the Union's death knell. And this letter, this, this very famous letter to a guy named John Holmes, concludes with what I think is just unmistakable, unforgettable expression of regret. I don't have it in front of me, but he says something like, I'm now going to die believing that everything that we fought for in 1776 was in vain, that our, our you know, acquiring self-government is going to be thrown away by the present generation. My only consolation is that I personally won't live to weep over this. And so it's really, you'd be hard pressed to have a clearer statement, a more forceful articulation of disillusionment than this. And it comes from Jefferson, right? The perennial optimist. And so I think the Missouri crisis was one cause of disillusionment. I go through a, a number of others, but it's also the biggest one that he basically foresees and, and forecasts the path of the Civil War. He says in the same letter, once you have a geographic divide with a deep moral principle dividing the two sides, it's never going to go away. It's just going to be etched deeper and deeper. And again, he, he basically foresees a conflict that he thinks might end the country is coming over this question. So for Washington, the fear was partisanship and faction. For Hamilton, a lack of energy. For Adams, a lack of civic virtue. For Jefferson, it was 
I guess I'd say sectional divisions, the, the geographic division between North and South over the spread of slavery. Again, there are other things too. He's worried about what he sees as the usurpations of the Supreme Court. He's worried about the spread and the mania for banking. I'd say the biggest other one is he's worried about consolidation. He worries that mm-hmm. even his fellow Republicans are consolidating too much power into the federal government, that they become federalists in all but name. And so his very last years are really consumed by, by this question. But if I have to pick one theme for Jefferson, it would be these, these sectional divisions. That juxtaposition is his worry about sectionalism and his worry about consolidation. That might seem a paradox, but, but they're very much related, right? A worry that consolidation might exacerbate. Consolidation in the long run, in the short run, could exacerbate the threat of secession in the long run, right? making it more likely that parts of the country will, will split apart once one of those parts of the country is seen as really in control. But once again, let me just, let's point to another one of Jefferson's writings. You, you cite his famous letter to Roger Waitman in advance of the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, affectionate note from Jefferson, looking back 50 years ago to the men he, he worked alongside in what he called the bold and doubtful election we were to make for our country. So there, just in that line, right, a hopeful, but also an anxious moment, the bold and doubtful choice. He talks about the rejoicings of the day that was to come for the 50th anniversary. In a way, it kind of reminds me of Washington's farewell address, right, which acknowledges and really emphasizes the deep the causes for deep concern and worry, but at the same time offering a note of, of hope. This letter comes at the very end of Jefferson's life. Of course, he famously dies on, on the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July, as, as did Adams. So is there a mix of hope and anxiety at the end? Or is this just Jefferson putting on a happy face for, for what he saw to be a, a very, very dark moment for the country? A good question. And I don't know that I have a good answer for it. I mean, the, the letter to Waitman is a really striking, as you suggest, if you, if you read it with the, the right glasses on, maybe you can see moments of doubt. But it's really a lyrical tribute to American democracy and the greatness of, of the principles of the Declaration. It's a really, you know, if you read everything Jefferson had written through, let's say, 1816 or even 1819, and then skip to the letter to Waitman at the very end, it would all seem to flow just fine. But then you've got this intervening decade where he's, you know, constantly weeping over the, the destruction of the Republic, even earlier that year. So he, he writes the letter to Waitman, is a, and this isn't a private letter. This is a very self-conscious final statement from public statement from his mm-hmm. pen. That he, he writes in June, but is, is published for the 4th of July. So he writes this in June. That January, he wrote as pessimistic of a letter as you could hope for, where he says, basically, we have to choose, we're about to have to choose between a consolidation or the dissolution of the states. I'm, he doesn't say this quite as explicitly as I am right now, but he basically says, I'm for dissolution. That is to say, I'm for a breakup of the union. Our political horizon is lowering. You know, the, we were once a free government, but it hasn't even lasted as long as the founders themselves did. And so it's a really a striking turnabout in the letter to Waitman. I don't know that I have a good explanation. So I suggest in the book that, well, maybe as you're suggesting, it's just he's trying to put on a good face for, for you know, his fellow citizens are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Declaration and he wants to, you know, he doesn't want to burst their bubble. Maybe he's trying to sort of burnish his own historical legacy, right? He knows that his future, the views of him in the future are going to be intimately bound up with his authorship of the Declaration. 
maybe it was a last minute change of heart. Maybe he's kind of reflects back on the declaration and, and, you know, kind of his perennial optimism comes back to him. But it's really, I have to say, if you've read the previous decade of his correspondence, it rings pretty hollow, right? He spent the past decade issuing countless warnings about the imminent collapse of the American Republic. The present generation is wantonly throwing away everything we've accomplished. I'm not going to live to weep over it and so forth. And so, yeah, the letter to Waitman is a striking, you know, about face at the very end. But I I think if we take the last, the warnings of the previous decade seriously, it it seems like a a departure from his late life outlook rather than the the culmination of it. So let's finish with Madison. After telling the story of these these four great founding fathers, you, you finish with a fifth Madison. The last of the fathers, as you point out, and you harken back to a book that I've, I, I love, Drew McCoy's uh, account of Madison's last year is The Last of the Fathers. Any listeners who haven't read that book, go read it. It's a, it's a great, great book. Madison finds himself in the position of being the last, not counting Burr, although, as you point out, Burr really doesn't count in many ways. But Madison's the last, and he is, you juxtapose him against the other four. He isn't really in the same place in terms of his hopes or, or fears for the country. But throughout the 1820s into the 1830s, he too is reflecting back quite a lot on that founding era because he's organizing his papers, because he's living through a moment that seems very much to be reminiscent of the moment that preceded, really caused the, the creation of our own constitution. Madison sees all of this, and he is much less pessimistic than the other four. How, how would you describe Madison's view of the world, and especially at the, at the end of his life? Sure. So l- let me just admit, when I went into writing this book, I basically assumed Madison would be disillusioned too. So I knew some stuff from the nullification crisis, which is the, the closest I think Madison ever comes to outright disillusionment. You know, and just knowing that he lived as long as he did into well into Andrew Jackson's second term as president. I kind of assumed he would be fed up with Jacksonian democracy and the, the excessive populism and licentiousness and so forth. And so I thought, frankly, I was going to be writing a book about these five disillusioned guys. But then it just wasn't there. If, if you look at his late, especially very late life letters and, and other comments, they're just too hopeful, sometimes almost defiantly hopeful about what America was and, and would continue to be. And so I said, well, I guess I need to flip the script and, and ask, well, then why was he the exception that proves the rule, right? Why was he the odd one out? Why did he retain his faith when so many others didn't? And I speculate about this in, in the, I guess it's the final chapter, regular chapter of the book. There are, I think, a bunch of reasons for it. Partly it's just temperament. He's not as unalloyed of an optimist as Jefferson was, but he's, he's very, people always talk about his equanimity, his, his ability, ability to remain unperturbed, even when, say, he's president and the capital is being burned to the ground. Nothing excites him or ruffles him. And so I think this, this helps to keep him from coming unglued. I think he also just had lower expectations than most of the other founders did. He never hoped, like Hamilton say, that the America would be this you know grand power, this grand player on the world stage. He never really expected the way Jefferson did that the yeoman farmers would get together and conduct the politics of their local ward and, and this kind of very localist type government would solve all their problems. He never had the hopes that Washington did that people would always rise above party or the hopes that Adams did that people would rise over selfishness and put the public good ahead of their own. And so, you know, he was more realistic about what the country could be. And 
that meant that he was less disappointed in what it became. I'll just mention one other potential reason was just precisely that he was the last of the founders, precisely that he had lived so long and seen so much. He saw the Constitution and, and the Union endure the Alien and Sedition Acts and the War of 1812 and the Missouri Crisis and so on. And so, you know, the, the longer it endured, the more durable it seemed to him. And so he had some hope that, okay, if, we, if we've managed to weather a half century's worth of storms, who's to say it can't, can't work still longer? And so, again, I, I don't, maybe optimistic is the right word, but I think not disillusioned, <laughs> at least the way the others were by, by the end of his life. You think of so much of Madison's work in framing the Constitution and presiding you know, in Congress or helping to lead Congress in those early days. So much of it is a, is a matter of striking balances, right? We, Madison recognizes we need virtue and we do need Republican virtue, but at the same time, we, need, we can't count on it. We need institutions. You know, Madison says, like Washington, faction is a bad thing, but he also recognized that faction is inevitable. And so the question is, how do you find a way to, to control its worst aspects and, and live with it. Madison knows you need energy in government, but he also knows you need checks and balances that, that might sometimes frustrate Hamilton. And you know, he shares so much of, of Jefferson's view of, of, of the, you know, the need for, for democracy and, and the will of the people to really prevail in the long run, but, but much more patient with, with the process than Jefferson would have been. I mean, it's interesting. And I think in ways, Madison's work speaks to each of the four issues you've identified for the first four. And, and in some ways, Madison's great contribution is finding and, and pursuing moderation for, for each of them. I was, I was wondering, as I delved into the book, whether your treatment of Madison would harken back to your last book, which I love on Smith and, and Hume. We don't have time to delve into it, but I'll leave it for listeners to wonder if maybe Madison's own intellectual roots in the Scottish Enlightenment might have something to say about this. That's an excuse for you to go out and buy not just Dennis's latest book, but the one before that. But maybe we'll, we'll, we'll end not with any of that, Dennis, but with this. You say one of the reasons why Madison may have been more optimistic is that he had experienced a little more than the rest. He had seen more of the American project through. Well, we've, you and I and, and, and the listeners and, and our, our generations, we've seen even more. We've seen America go through much, much worse after Madison's passing. And we've seen, obviously, the country flourish, not without timeless problems and, and problems of the moment. As we close, should we be optimistic, even more optimistic for the reasons that, that Madison was? Feel free to disagree. You can, you can end on a pessimistic note, just like Washington, Adams, Hamilton, and Jefferson. Sure. So I'm, I'm afraid the, the epilogue to the book does have a bit of the, the typical academic, you know, on the one hand, but on the other, right? So on the one hand, you know, for, you know if we think through... Washington's, Hamilton's, Adams, Jefferson's worries, those worries are all still with us, right? We still worry about partisan polarization. We still worry about a lack of civic engagement and, and you know, voting and, and the like. We still worry, I mean, all of Jefferson's worries, we, we worry about sectional divisions, we worry about consolidation. Even Hamilton, Hamilton is often seen as kind of the, the one who envisions America as this capitalist, great power with strong executive and the like. But he's worried that the government isn't sufficiently vigorous or energetic. And, you know, it is pretty impotent it, for all its potential power. It's the, the gridlock has, has made it so overwhelmingly possible to pass major legislation. I think he would be aghast at the way politicians feel compelled to pander to the people, right? He's worried about small de-democracy or licentiousness. And so 
all their worries are still with us. There are many other worries that one could name, especially in the, the, the past few years. January 6th is only a few months <laughs> prior to, to our taping here. And so right. there are lots of causes for worry and lots of causes for disillusionment. Now, as you suggest, I think if, if Madison could find hope in the fact that the country had lasted a half century, the Constitution had, well, the Constitution's now lasted 230 years, has rock-solid legitimacy among the American people. No one would, you know, we, we often, you often hear people saying, well, we should get rid of the Electoral College or end the filibuster or whatever it might be. But I don't think you're going to win a lot of admirers as a politician if you say, well, let's scrap the Constitution, right? Let, let's start over. That, that's not the path to electoral victory, right? And I think there's comfort to be taken in the fact that precisely in the worries of the founders, right, the fact that American politics was in some ways much worse, much more appalling in their time than it is now for all of its ills, right, for all the, you know, the attacks we've just seen on the basic democratic process, right, the storming of the Capitol yeah. and the like, right? Well, we don't have widespread chattel slavery. We don't have, you know, very repeated, serious threats of secession and civil war. For all the, the harrowing nature of the attack on the Capitol, I still think political violence is less common today. Very few of our elections are as ugly as the election of 1800. There's really a lot that was worse about American politics when the founders, when, whom we so admire, when they presided over the country. And so, you know, I, I do hope that the Madison chapters at least help us to summon a broader census perspective. We hear, you know, that the throughout American history, people have always prophesied the end of American democracy, that you know, oh, people have always said that, but this time it really is the end of democracy as we know it. You know, I do hope that this whole history helps people to summon a broader sense of perspective before, before coming to that conclusion. Well, I'd encourage all of our listeners to read it for a, a better understanding of the founding generation, their era, and thus a, a better understanding of, of our own as well. Dennis, this is a, a wonderful book. Thanks for writing it. Again, the title is Fears of a Setting Sun. The Disillusionment of America's Founders. And, and thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential. 